Okay, so today's reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 18, and it's on page 290. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his, atten- and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was for David to fall by the hands of the Philistines. 
When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realised that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became well known. I think we'll just leave it, uh, yeah, just, uh, could just shut the like this, we just keep the, one. And we've prayed, and Hannah's read brilliantly, Hannah's uh, normally in another church in London that uh, supports us, and so she was going to be here this evening, I asked her to read, it's lovely to have her here, and we can press on and look at that chapter that Hannah's just read, 1 Samuel chapter 18. And let me start by saying something really shocking. Okay, consider yourself warned, prepare to be shocked. And that is to say, you will either be someone who serves Jesus, or you will be satanic. Now you see what I mean in a minute. But there are just two options. And the question is, how will you know which you are? Because there are any number of Christians and non-Christians who think that they're on the side of the angels. How do we know whether we've got halos or horns, if I can put it like that? Well, this chapter takes the lid off. And you probably know it's about, it's about three men, Jonathan, Saul and David. And we're going to learn from each of them. First... Serving the Messiah from Jonathan. That's what he wants to do. And it's there in the first four verses. Now look, it's really hard to understand one bit of the Bible unless you know the bit that came before. And in fact, in this case, two bits that came before. Because in Jonathan, in, in chapter 16, we found out that David became God's Messiah. He was the next anointed king of Israel. And as the next anointed king of Israel in chapter 16, he goes and kills a giant called Goliath. And then all God's people can enter into that victory. And so, Jonathan, in chapter 18, verse 1, loves him. For doing that. Now, last week we saw that David was uh, like Jesus, really, killing off the biggest enemy that is facing mankind, which is death. And all the people of Jesus climbed over the body of death into an eternal future, so death isn't around to stop the joy of new life. And the right response to that Messiah, Jesus, who did that, is like Jonathan, to love him, 
for winning that battle for you. Okay? So the first thing that Jonathan teaches us to do is to serve the Messiah by loving him. But then in verse 3, he actually serves him. He makes a covenant with David. Now, it doesn't say what the covenant was, but if you track his relationship with David from now on, it's a commitment to serve him. I think that's the powerful point that he's making in verse 4. The royal robe is coming off and it's going on David instead. There's role reversal going on. Jonathan's next in line to the throne. So this is really Prince Charles before the coronation telling someone else, here, you'd better have all this regalia. You'd do a better job. You'd be a better king. Now, that would be entirely true. Jonathan's right. That would be entirely true of David. He would make a great king. Better than Jonathan ever would. And it would be entirely true of Jesus as well. He'll make a better king. And Jonathan helps us to know how to react to him. To think the way Jonathan did. To say, you will lead me far better than I will ever lead myself. I'm going to make a covenant promise to follow you for the rest of my life as the one who will lead me from now on. That's how Jonathan wanted to serve Jesus. And then, in verse 4, he gives him his weapons too, which is a big thing, isn't it? Uh, For a career soldier to leave himself unarmed I can tell you from past experience, if I had to uh, uh, ask my uh, uh, men in the army when I was there to give up their weapons, uh, they would have felt very vulnerable. And uh, David uh, would have felt like that too. But he's clearly trusting David to protect him from now on. Here are my weapons, you protect me. That's the message. Now, we don't wear physical protection the same way that soldiers do, the same way that Jonathan did, but I'll tell you what our armor-plated defense is, all of us. Our armor-plated defense is best described by a Bible description that calls it our self-righteousness. In other words, our rightness is our defense. If you try and come and tell me I'm wrong, uh, the bullets will just fly off. You won't dent me because I have this screen of rightness. And those are my weapons. And if you try and tell me I'm wrong, then I will use my weapons to uh, uh, attack you instead. That's my defense. My wanting to see myself in the right whenever anyone comes against me. But when you start trusting Jesus, the wonderful thing is that you and I can start being vulnerable to admit that we're wrong. We don't need to put up the defense shield because he will come to our defense against any accuser. It's like he would say, hey, hands off. I've killed death for him. And 
nothing will separate him from my love. If you make him your enemy, you will be against me. I'll defend him. Now, how far do you want to push this? Because I'm on his side. You see? That's what Jesus does when we trust him with our defense and we can put down our own sense of rightness uh, to defend uh, ourselves and to maintain that we are always right when, frankly, we know that we're not. Okay? So, Jonathan is wonderfully able to serve his Messiah, loving him, serving him with a commitment for life, and trusting him uh, to be his defense from now on. But his dad, his dad is, I suppose you could say the Bible version of a human Satan, in the sense that he opposes the Messiah from the end of this chapter to the end of this book. Saul is one who is in opposition to David. Now, actually, if you stop and think about it, Saul had more reason to love David than Jonathan did. Because, actually, he had personally benefited from David's heart play when he was in a bad mood. And also, David had killed the giant primarily for his king. If Jonathan loved him for doing that, well, Saul should have loved him even more. And even when you look at those words that the women sang in verse 7, they're actually paying him a compliment. He gets very cross that they say, he's killed his thousands, David is ten thousand. Actually, if you stop and think about it, they're paying him a big compliment. Because if you know the story, Saul's job in chapter 9, verse 16, was to kill Philistines. And now there are people singing about the fact that he is doing that through David. He's at last doing what he's supposed to be doing in the eyes of everybody. And the people are singing about the Philistines and mentioning Saul first. And that actually is quite a compliment because if you've been watching the story so far, you know that when the Philistines come, Saul generally does nothing. He's, he's not done very much to kill any Philistine, really. But now they're giving him such a write-up for more than he's done. He should be flattered. So why is he so angry when they sing that song in front of him? Well, the evil in Saul's heart can be understood in one very simple way. He really cared what other people thought about him. And we saw that already, didn't we, when we were there in chapter 17. I tell you, it's always easy to understand one bit of the Bible if you've been in the bits before. I look at 1 Samuel chapter 15. It's just a couple of pages back. And uh, you can see how in chapter 15, verse 24, he didn't listen to God because I violated the Lord's command. I was afraid of the men. Worried, worried about what they think. And again, in that same chapter, verse 30, he wants the prophet Samuel to stand next to him because Samuel went back with Saul. Uh, sorry, uh, he wanted, uh, please honor me before the elders of my people to come back and stand with me. 
I want honour in front of my elders. Now, with a heart like that, when you want people to think well of you, then verse 7 flicks the switch. He cares what people think, and that heart then turns anti-David in verses 8 to 9, and then that leaves him wide open in verse 10 to that evil spirit that comes next in uh, verse 10 and verse 11. Now, we have got to see that connection. When we care what others think, we open the door to evil. That's what happened to Saul. It's what happens. And so there's this failed attempt to kill David in verse 11. And so the penny finally drops in verse 12 that the Lord was with David. Now you'd have thought at that point, Saul might have uh, understood, here is a good time to hand over. At least to devolve power so that as one becomes, one decreases, the other can increase. But no. What he does is then put David into as much danger as he possibly can. He's promoted David before to give him honor, but now he's putting him in charge in verse 13, in charge of big numbers. So he'll then be now fighting the big battles where the enemy troops will look to see who's in charge of this one to take him out and make him a target. Now it doesn't work because if you look at verse 14, it says in everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And so David, because he's God's Messiah, will always win. And then Saul, you might think, now would be a good time to say, right, okay, I see the Lord's with him. Okay, enough. I'll hand over. Nope. What he does is he turns his daughters into battle bait. So now, they're yours if you fight, and I hope you die. Uh, in verse 17. Here's my elder daughter Merab. I will give you to marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. Ha! The Saul said to himself, I won't raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Now can you see the subtle change that's happened? It's Saul's job to kill Philistines. Remember chapter 9 verse 16? Now he wants the Philistines to win. That's what... Uh, uh, has been uh, the great change. And it really, nonetheless, gives us insight into the frustrations of being God's enemy. Because the more you lose, you don't give up. The more you try, and the more you lose again. And in that sense, King Saul is a mirror of Satan, who's often called the ruler of this world. <coughs> He keeps striking at the Messiah and he loses at every single strike. And the day he orchestrates the death of the Messiah on the cross is the day that Jesus saves the most and inflicted his heaviest defeat on the enemy. So the enemy is always going to lose. But it's easy to become the enemy. 
because the minute we start caring what other people think, we step into Satan's world and we begin to open the door to evil ourselves. Third man is David, and I guess you picked up he comes across as humble in every mention of him. He simply did what he was told in verse 13. Saul gives him a job. He goes and does it again and again and again. When he comes to marrying the royal daughters in verses 18 and 23, he's not pushing himself forward, is he? He's quite uh, uh, diffident and uh, embarrassed about it. Who is he to be marrying into royalty? He doesn't count equality with the king a thing to be grasped. And yet, actually, if you think about it, he's got every reason to be proud. He's famous, after all, in verse 7. He's been promoted and shot up the ranks in verse 13. He's popular in verse 16. He's massively successful in the last verse in chapter 18, verse 30. More success than any of the other officers in Saul's army. And yet it seems the higher he rises, the more humble he sounds. So when you listen to David describing himself in verse 23, it's astonishing. After all the success and the fame and the popularity, what does he say about himself in verse 23? He says, uh, do you think it's a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. And yet in that, he shows us what the real mark of a Messiah is. The real mark of a Messiah is humility. That is what marks out God's Messiah every time. David, Jesus. Check Jesus. Uh, I put the page number there because uh, it would be really helpful to go across to page 1179 and... Um, Philippians chapter 2, and to have a look. At 1179, and I'm going to read verses 5 to 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And this is where we ought to sit up and start... Uh, looking at this closely, because there is something here for us. If you look at verse 5, Paul in verse 5 is saying, hey, this could be you. You could be like this as well. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In other words, we're invited to stay small. My friends, that is the only way to be set free from pleasing other people. 
doesn't matter what other people think if you just know that God is with you and it doesn't really matter about the rest. Let God handle our reputations. The big thing is for us to know that he is with us and we know he is with us ever since Jesus died on the cross. From that moment, anyone who follows Jesus will know that God is absolutely with us. And we can therefore keep ourselves small in front of others, in the way we become servants, in the way we talk about ourselves the way David spoke about himself in verse 23. You can do that when you have the freedom of knowing that God is with you. And that is all that matters and counts. Now, in the goodness of God, actually, I think he helps us to be like his Messiah in humility. Most of us have a truckload of weaknesses. And that helps us to see that we are not big and uh, high-performance people. And it helps us to uh, uh, not rise above ourselves too much once we start getting honest about that. But even if we were high achievers, even if we had all those things, fame, promotion, popularity, success, we can still be set free from having to impress others when we really soak up the truth that God is with us and breathe that air and live in that uh, world of uh, joy and uh, confidence. That will set us free from the drive to please people. Knowing God is with you will set you free from the drive to please other people. Whereas Saul, on the other hand, knew that God wasn't with him. And so he was driven by a desire to please men, ultimately driven into evil because of that. So what's the take home for us? Well, the first thing I guess, if you're new to church, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? You just simply can't be neutral. You will either, sometimes it really helps to see the choice as the choice between two real people. Either Saul, well, look at him for a little while. See what it's like when you live the life of an unbeliever, which is ultimately to oppose God's uh, Messiah because you want people to look at you more than to look at him. And when that happens, then evil is always going to be the open door uh, for uh, what happens next in our lives. Whereas Jonathan is the one who understood uh, how the Lord Jesus had won a huge battle for him. And so he loved him and he wanted to make a commitment to serve him and to trust him. And that would be uh, the choice that uh, God's people would want to make 
and it'd be really great if that's the choice that you were willing to make. And you were wondering, how is it that I might uh, respond to Jesus? Well, look at the battle he's won for you. And love him. Serve him. Trust him. And hold on to him. Ask for him to do that. Uh, to help you to respond to him the way Jonathan did. But what happens if you're knocked around in church circles and you've been uh, around churches before and maybe a lot? Have you spotted, if I could put it like this, the Satan signs that are actually there in the people who claim to be God's people? So Saul was meant to be a leader of God's people. And yet actually, the Satan marks were all over him. He opposed Messiah. And in the same way, as I think we looked at our all-age slot, uh, the Pharisees in the New Testament were God's people, God's good people, if you asked anybody around in those days. And yet they're the ones that actually opposed the Messiah. Why did they do that? Because they had such a high opinion of themselves. They didn't want his uh, uh, insights to dent that. And that is how church people can use that churchiness to big themselves up rather than to actually uh, reveal the greatness of Jesus instead. And so you say past all the signs that God is with Jesus because in the end your big uh, passion is to uh, increase uh, yourself and your own uh, uh, reputation more than his. And then thirdly, what happens if you really want to live more deeply in the groove of the Christian life? Well, I think actually it's a wonderful thing that through David and then Jesus were invited to crave humility. Do it knowing that uh, God is with you. Be secure that he is with you and then take every opportunity as David did to lower people's view of you. It's the only way to escape wanting them to think higher all the time. And so therefore it is important for us to really get to believe deeply that the Lord is with us by looking at the cross and taking all our uh, understanding of his love for us from there. And then once uh, we uh, believe that deeply then we can simply allow humility to uh, characterize our relationship with others. We don't want them to inflate us uh, because we're secure in him. And the great joy and the blessing of humility is that the more we shrink ourselves, the more we are able to be grateful for what he has done for us. If you think that yeah, we're doing okay, then anything that God does for us 
we kind of take it for granted, of course, we do that, aren't we? But when we realize and keep ourselves small and say, actually, no, I really don't deserve God's goodness and love, and yet he is with me, then we begin to marvel at every sign of his goodness that comes our way. It's a wonderful liberation to be content that God is with us, liberation from the freedom, uh, from the slavery of pleasing others, and great freedom to be grateful to the God who loves us so much. So it is a wonderful thing that we can learn that uh, tonight. Crave humility. It opens new doors, not to evil, but to a lasting delight in God's goodness. Let's ask God to help us. Uh, we'll pray and we'll take questions uh, as you'd like to ask them. Let's pray first. Our Heavenly Father, the one thing we'd share in common tonight is that we'd all want people to think well of us. And so please help us to take seriously the warning that if we go down that track, it'll fill us with evil, it'll separate us from Jesus. So please rescue us and turn us into Jonathan's, who love Jesus for the battle against death that he wins for us, and where we might put him first for the rest of our lives and live for the glory of his name. And we pray this for his sake. Amen.